Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Oh my gosh! Hi! It feels so good to be back. I feel like I've been gone from you longer than I have been. It's only been 10 days. I think I've taken a longer break than that between episodes. This one is a little more significant. I moved! From, from D.C. to L.A. I'm officially like L.A. Bell. I moved last Wednesday, so I've been here just a week. It's Wednesday when I'm recording, so I've only been here just a week. Can I tell you, I love L.A., and I'm mad I didn't move sooner. If you've been following me for a really long time, you know that there were certain things in life that I've always wanted. One of them was to live in a loft. I currently live in a loft. I wake up every day to a view of mountains. I can see the sunrise over the mountains. I have six windows. I have no curtains. I'm living like white people. And there's no tall buildings around me. I have a bike path near my house. So I go for a two-mile walk every morning towards the mountains. Beautiful views. No hills, though, so like my tush is not getting the workout that it needs, but I'm getting my cardio in. I'm not really sweating as much because there's no humidity here. And every day, like they say the high is 80, but 80 with no humidity really isn't all that hot. And most days here, it's been going up to like 70, 75. L.A. natives or people who have been here for a while are walking around in like long sleeve sweatsuits. Like I'll have on like a wife beater and tights and they look at me like I'm crazy. And I look at them like they're crazy because I'm like, what you all bundled up for in 75 degree weather? Eventually I'll become one of those people who thinks like 60 degrees requires a North Face. If you see me in a North Face in 60 degree weather, call my ass out. Tell me you look ridiculous. You want to know a fun fact? I ain't even bring my North Face. I ain't bring my North Face. I left my, my good Canada goose. Like I had like the good one with like the good fur around it. I didn't even bring it because I was like, what's the point? I'll go back to D.C. for CBC and I guess I'll pick up my coat then. I figure if I have to go to the East Coast between now and September, it's April. Like I won't need a real coat. What was the point in bringing it and taking up closet space? Speaking of closet space, I have all those dresses. I've been here for a week. I haven't worn heels or a dress. I've been in athletic wear the whole time. I have my morning workout clothes and then I have like my fancy sweats for the rest of the day. I haven't combed my hair in a week. I dyed my hair the color of my eyes. It's like a brownish, reddish, blondish. I have like a light tan just because, you know, it's sunny here. It's the desert essentially. I don't really look like me. I look in the mirror and I'm just like, who's that girl? It's kind of weird, but I like it. But yeah, I'm living my best life. I have like zero furniture. I have a desk. I have a bench. It's a chase. It's a beautiful leather chase. I've had it for my very first apartment since like 2002. I have a mattress that is sitting in plastic on the floor. And I have an air mattress sitting on top of that mattress because my bed has not arrived. So I'm sleeping in a loft on my air mattress. 
at this desk. And just so you know how much I love you, I want you to know that the bench that I'm sitting on is totally not high enough for this desk. It's very uncomfortable to sit at. And yet and still, as an act of love and dedication to this this podcast, I'm sitting here in an uncomfortable position taping this and editing this to go up for you guys. I appreciate the love that you've shown for my podcast. And I actually really feel like this is one of my callings in life. I've done a lot of things. Everything doesn't feel like, oh, this is the thing that you're supposed to be doing. This feels like a thing I'm supposed to be doing. My back is going to kill me, especially sleeping on the air mattress. But no complaints. Life is good. I am happy. Like level 10. So that is my LA update. Oh, I went to the marathon store, the store that Nipsey Hussle owned that unfortunately, tragically, he was killed in front of about a a week and a half ago, I guess 10 days now. I had no plans to go to the store. My understanding was that the marathon store was in the middle of the hood. It's off Crenshaw in South Central LA. And I went to the store, so I can tell you this now. Where the store is located at the time of day that I went, I went 6 p.m. on a Sunday. It was totally fine. It is absolutely the hood. I have a rule that I do not go to hoods I don't know. Like, I think that's just common sense and self-preservation. I wasn't comfortable enough, definitely not, to go alone. So one of the original billionaires, she is from L.A. She's from South Central. She reached out to me. She was like, I know you're in L.A. I know you want to go to the marathon store. And I also know you. And so I know you won't go without someone who's from here. I'm from here. I would love to take you. Let me know when you'd like to go. We arranged the adult version of a play date. I was going to be in Baldwin Hills. I wanted to see the Aretha Franklin movie. I saw it already. I wanted to see it with black people. So I decided I wanted to go to Baldwin Hills. In general, it was not the black experience that I wanted, but it was fine. But this very kind billionaire, I got to the theater a couple hours early and she picked me up and she took me on a quick tour of South Central. I would like to report for the folks that have not been to South Central LA and like me, all you know of South Central is Boys in the Hood, NWA, Ice Cube, Moesha, Menace to Society, and also Insecure. A lot of Insecure is filmed in South Central as well. I will tell you this. Black folk on the West Coast, there is a community or communities of us who are living very well in very nice homes that are palatial and spacious, well-maintained, and there are palm trees. I not being from the West Coast. I see palm trees and I automatically think Lux Living, but there are also palm trees in the middle of what we would call the hood. However, there are Black folk living tremendously well with amazing views of downtown LA. My guide took me to this place. I want to say it was in View Park, but it was in the, the Black neighborhood. So if it wasn't View Park, it was another Black neighborhood. But she took me to this this place and it wasn't a lookout it was just a residential street that had a clear on view of downtown LA and it was majestic it was the same feeling that you get if you've ever watched a Spike Lee movie she's got a habit does it and the film and the Netflix series 
They go to the waterfront of, of Brooklyn, which has the best view of Manhattan. And you can see like all the sprawling skyscrapers. The view of DTLA from whatever beautifully black neighborhood it was that my guide took me to, it gives you this gasp of breath. It's very, very beautiful. But yes, so we went down to the marathon store. I did not make it up to the store. Street leading to the store is blocked off. The store is right off Crenshaw. It's right off uh, construction for a new metro line. There was a line to view the memorial. Lots of people have come by. Lots, like thousands of people have come by and they've left blue candles. Nipsey was a crip. So blue, obviously. Tons of people had come by. They left candles. They left teddy bears. They left cards, uh, just mementos to, to pay their respects to a community leader, a fallen hero. As an East Coast girl, I don't think we fully understand the magnitude or impact that Nipsey had on his community. I didn't really know him like that. I, I know L.A. rappers, but he was not somebody who was on my radar Honestly, I knew him as, as Lauren London's boyfriend, and I'd only heard of him maybe two months ago when he and Lauren were in, in GQ. Like, I saw him, and I, I, I was like, oh, who's this guy dating Lauren London? You know, I knew she had a, a kid by Wayne. I didn't know she had a boyfriend. She had a, a kid with him. So I'm interested in her. So I looked him up, and the first article that came up was Forbes, and I was like, oh, he's not just, quote, unquote, a rapper. Like, he's a businessman. I thought that was dope. But he's a really big deal. When I drove into the complex for the movie theater, which is attached to a mall, there was a huge billboard of Nipsey. It was a Puma ad. It wasn't a rest in peace ad. It was an ad that's been there for a while because Puma had contracted a very popular and influential person to help sell their shoes. Like, big deal. Billboard level. I I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. But yeah, so went to the store. The line went from like literally around the whole block. So it went to halfway down the block to the corner and then down that whole next block to that corner to down a really long block, like the length of the block to that corner and then halfway around the next block. So I would say like three fourths of a city block people were in line to pay their respects. And it wasn't like a single file line. It was like five and six people across. Needless to say, I did not stand in the line, but I was there and it was very solemn, as you would expect. Memorials and funerals for people who don't yet have gray hair are sad or an extra level of sad. But I was happy to see black people. Just in the week that I've been in L.A., it's it's much different than Brooklyn. It's much different than PG County. I don't see black people with the same regularity. Sometimes you just need to be around people to just like look like you, you know? I will add this. The conspiracy theory that folks have about Nipsey was killed because he was working on a documentary about Dr. Sebi, that's laughable here. It's widely accepted that he was killed by, excuse my language, but this is the best way to describe it, a nigga doing nigga shit. The narrative that you probably have heard, the Eric Holder guy who went to the store, he was a snitch, 
and he was asked to leave. He got his feelings hurt. He got embarrassed. So he came back with a gun and shot Nipsey multiple times, kicked him in the head. That's the narrative that's widely accepted. I also wonder if the people who talk about Dr. Sebi are really aware of some of the intricacies. Like last time I recorded this podcast, literally I'd heard about Nipsey Hussle's death an hour before I started taping. And I was kind of in my feelings because, you know, I just read about him. I feel like I just got introduced to him. Like I was like, oh, I'll get around to listening to whatever album he got nominated for a Grammy. And I just didn't. And then, you know, this guy's dead. I'm very much empathizing with Lauren London because I like her. I've, I've loved her since she was in ATL. Like I felt like she was one of my friends or like a little sister or, or something like that. So to to think about what this woman must be going through, like really, really affected me. I talked about Dr. Sebi in the last podcast, and I gave like a, a general overview of what I knew about his fame or infamy, depending on how you want to look on it, and his death, which was curious to some. People were throwing around that conspiracy theory, so I just threw it out there as to, you know, acknowledge what people were saying. In the intervening week and change, I've had a chance to do just a bit more research. Remember that guy who was like four feet tall on Instagram and he had on like a little Muslim hat? He was talking about how women shouldn't get their periods because it's unclean and and ish like that. You know, Dr. Sebi was on that same ish, right? He has a bunch of videos that that have been posted on YouTube. He firmly believed that women were not supposed to have a period, that the reason that we have one now is because of poor eating choices. According to his research, that women would only have a period once every four years for, for, these are his words, for 10 minutes in ancient times. But in modern times, because women are eating improperly, and behaving improperly, then we have a period every month. I just want y'all who are putting him on a pedestal as as a a spiritual leader or a, a nutrition leader, just to be aware that some of his fact-finding may be seriously flawed. In other news, there are a couple other topics that I want to talk about today. I want to talk about Joe Biden. I want to talk about Kodak Black. I want to talk about black women and weight. There's a viral clip of a minister. I would say it's berating. He would say it's critiquing a woman in the church who wanted to know why she was single. And the first thing he says to the woman is that she's overweight. And then he tells her she needs to buy a better bra. I've been thinking about doing something about black women and wait for a while. So I thought this was a good opportunity. I was also on a panel recently at my alma mater, University of Maryland. And one of the women who I shared the stage with is a professor who specializes in Black women and their relationship with food. Dr. Psyche Williams-Forson, University of Maryland, American Studies. So I was able to get her on the phone and we had like a really great conversation. So I will share that as well. I'm happy you're here and I hope that you'll stick with me through all of our topics. So I love Joe Biden. 
I know he is a flawed man. There's some issues with how he handled the Anita Hill hearings. I think that he is the best chance that the Democrats have to beat Trump. And I say that and still make no excuses for the accusations against him. Multiple women have accused Joe Biden of being inappropriate over the years. And I think men need to be mindful of how they behave with women. I don't think any woman should just be told, oh, get over it if she is uncomfortable. I just want to be very clear about that. I think women's boundaries absolutely should be respected at all times in all cases. The Cut from New York Magazine did a summary of the women who had accused Biden of of wrongdoing. There were about six or seven women who had accused Biden of being inappropriate and making them uncomfortable. Biden is accused of, of things such as putting his hands on a woman's shoulders, putting his head against another woman's head, forehead, of kissing a woman in her hair. He smelled her hair and kissed the back of, of her head. Another woman says Biden touched and rubbed his nose against hers. He rested his hand on a woman's shoulders. He hugged another woman a bit too long. He squeezed a woman's shoulders and, and complimented her smile. The way that people were crucifying him, I expected that it would be very salacious. So I think Trump weighed in on it too, which I was like, sir, pots and kettles. Again, I don't think that it is okay to make women or men, just for clarity, to feel uncomfortable. This shit? Are you fucking kidding me? You tell me Biden grabbed your ass. You tell me he propositioned you. You tell me he tried to get a quick feel of some breasts like that minister did Ariana Grande at Aretha Franklin's funeral. I will get the torches out and I will march with you. I will yell me too from the high heavens. But folks got to get a grip. These accusations are not worthy of destroying someone's career. These women are saying that like, oh, I was so upset afterward. You were upset because someone put their forehead against yours. Are you serious? Are any of these women black? They weren't identified as such. This strikes me as some real like white women's tears being weaponized. And look, black folks told y'all, y'all got to stop with that shit. They do it to us and they're going to turn around and do it to you. And this strikes me very much as white women's tears being weaponized against white men. In this Me Too environment, people still need to recognize nuance. There's a difference between a Harvey Weinstein and a Joe Biden. There's a difference between a Matt Lauer who has a button in his office to, that he used to lock women in and a guy who puts his forehead against yours. Because honestly, that's not a sexual gesture. That you thought he was coming in for a kiss? Like, I get it. Like, the forehead thing is not something everybody does. But what you thought was going to happen isn't what happened. He put his forehead against yours. It's a little strange. But that's not sexual harassment. That's not sexual assault. And it just feels like it's Me Too 
misused. I don't want to say it's Me Too run, run amok because I don't think it's the, the organization. I don't think it's the meaning of Me Too that's, that's being corrupt. I think it's people who are corrupting it. None of the accusations against Biden. I'm looking at these six women. I'm reading their details and they're saying, I felt so uncomfortable. And I'm like, did you say something in the moment though? Because like a man who's like on some Trump-ish, like, oh, I grabbed them by, by, by the vagina or the pussy. The average person should know that that is inappropriate, that you do not grab women that you don't know who are unwilling that you don't have a sexual relationship with and you know that it's okay for you to do so like the average person would know that's not okay. I don't think the average person would think that she will be deeply offended and, and feel harassed and feel that I'm evading her space. If I feel that we're having a moment and I put my forehead against hers, the nuzzling, the back of the head thing, like the, it is paternalistic. But it's something older people do when they feel, I don't know, warm and fuzzy about young people. Overall, is it appropriate? No, it's not. To me, it doesn't rise to the point that I need to go and run to the press and tell, tell what happened to me as this, it's this very tragic and horrible thing. Is that something you can file a police report about? The women feel uncomfortable. They didn't say anything at the time. They went along with it. And this is not like, again, something that the average person would be offended by. Like if somebody nuzzled my head, like, and I don't have a relationship with them, I might be like, oh, that was weird. I personally wouldn't feel violated. I wouldn't feel like this is something that I need to go tell people about. It just doesn't rise to that level for me. Kodak Black. He did a, I guess it was a live video. And he started talking about Lauren London. And he said he wanted to holler after a year. Lauren London being the significant other of Nipsey Hussle. I don't know if she was a wife or a girlfriend. She's very private about her life. People keep telling me. I don't follow her closely on social media. I saw her with Hussle in... The pages of GQ, that doesn't strike me as someone who's private, but okay. She has repeatedly denied being his wife, but people, for whatever reason, believe that they were married. I guess there are some people on social media who said they were married in Mexico and they had attended the wedding. I get why people wouldn't give details about you know their married life and such, but I don't understand why people would hide whether they're actually married to someone or not but to each their own um but Kodak Black said that you know essentially Lauren London is a widow and after a year of her crying he wanted to holler some folks would say never in a million years that would Lauren London pay attention to Kodak Black she got a kid with Wayne I don't really see a difference between him and Kodak Black but neither here nor there Couple rappers, T.I., The Game, clap back at Kodak about his disrespect. I have mixed feelings about T.I. I think he is a fuckboy who's aging and is trying to do better. 
he's been calling out people a lot lately. Like he he defended his wife on Instagram the other day. He posted some picture and and people were dragging her. So he posted a a, a rant the the next day and was like, I don't know. Essentially, was like, I don't know in what world you think it's okay to speak ill of my wife to me, but absolutely it's not. I've been loving it for. I don't know, 20 years or such that he said, and basically shut up and and leave us alone. I think he kind of opened the door for some of that disrespect. Absolutely, people speak ill of celebrities all the time because people don't think celebrities are human. But he's also been pretty disrespectful publicly of his wife. A couple years ago, he, you know, did an interview where he called her a distraction. He needs to acknowledge that the way he's disrespected his wife publicly, the cheating as well, that people feel comfortable disrespecting her in his space on his page because he does. It's kind of like when you drag your boyfriend or your significant other to your friends. You talk about like he ain't shit and he did this and he cheated and he blah, 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 blah. And then you get back with him. You expect your friends to like not remember what you said. But they'll feel comfortable disrespecting him because you've previously disrespected him. I think it's the same thing. But I feel like T.I. is trying to do better, which I respect. So Kodak Black first popped on my radar, not for his song about the Jesus piece, which I actually think is a really good song. I like that song. I had to stop listening to it on GP. But when Kodak Black was like, oh, no. Dark-skinned women are the worst and and light-skinned women are are easier to get along with and dark-skinned women have bad attitudes. Like, you had nothing to say about that. When this man got got rape charges, you didn't have anything to say about that. But when you felt that he was disrespecting Nipsey Hussle, because that really wasn't about Lauren London, it was really about the man that she's attached to, that's an issue. But all the other stuff, the, the previous disrespect, no commentary. Part of me wants to be like, you only care because of the man involved. And then part of me also wants to be like, maybe he's evolving, trying to be a better person. Because I do see him struggling with growth. I do see him trying to be a better man. And I want to acknowledge that. It's late, but better late than never. I'm late on some things. Better late than never. But I also just wish that you took the treatment of women and the disrespect of women who are not your wife or related to you as seriously as you take the casual disrespect to other men. Because what Kodak Black said, I mean, it was, it was bad to say. You know, it was, it, was, it was poor timing. Speaking of that, I got in a bit of a kerfluffle. I think people didn't listen to last week's podcast in which I spoke for about 10 minutes about my feelings on on Nip, Nipsey Hussle's passing. People just read what I wrote on Instagram. One of the things that I thought about upon hearing about his passing was what happens to Lauren London and her child? Because they're the, the survivors here, you know, or, and the other child. He has another child with someone else. Specifically, because I know him through Lauren London, I was like, what happens to her? People got really upset with me for saying, I hope that she's his wife, because that's one less thing battling for 
her rightful piece of his estate is one less thing she has to worry about during this tragedy. And I specifically said, I hope they are married and not because of romance or, and maybe I should have been clearer to say, not because of respectability that comes with quote and unquote the title of wife. I just really wanted to make sure the woman was okay. And people were like, who thinks about wills and and marriage and titles like when, when someone dies? I do. Because these very tragic things happen to men and it's usually the women who are left behind to mourn and pick up pieces and clean up. It's the mothers, it's the daughters, it's the wives, it's the girlfriends who are responsible for the legacy. And I just want to make sure that This woman, who I care about because I think she's dope, is cared for and taken care of. The wife is taken care of. Girlfriends, not so much. You invest your life with someone five years. You create their legacy for them by birthing a child. You deserve something too. Not just the child. You deserve something. It's not a sexy conversation. It's not romantic. But it's a conversation that women need to be mindful of nonetheless. The last thing I wanted to talk about, this is one of the things that's been on my mind for a minute, is the relationship with black women and food, black women and weight. A couple months ago, I posted a picture of an overweight woman. It was part of a, it was a clothing ad. She was in essentially like a, a white wife beater and some white underwear. Black girl, long black weave. She's a model. I saw the original image on Afropunk's page and people were ripping into this woman in such a horrible way. She's too fat. She's unhealthy. Why is she in this ad? And it seemed to be a completely foreign idea to people that people who are big need to wear clothing too. It might behoove a clothing company who produces clothing for plus-size women to put a plus-size woman in the ad wearing the clothing that they produce for women who are her size. Revolutionary. Ever since I, I read those comments, I'd been thinking about doing something about plus-size women or just women in weight in general. Because there's a very narrow standard of beauty. And because it's narrow, most people don't fit into it. And I'm talking about the black standard of beauty, not the white standard of beauty, which I don't think needs any explanation to my mostly black audience. But I wanted to talk about just black women in weight and black women in appearance and black women in beauty. And as it would happen, I was on a panel at the University of Maryland for Women's History Month. And one of the women on the panel is an expert in black women and their relationship with food. Psyche Williams-Forson, she is an associate professor and chair of American Studies at the University of Maryland. She's an affiliate faculty member on the Women's Studies and African American Studies departments and the Consortium on Race, Gender, and Ethnicity. Her work on material, culture, and food has been published in books, Taking Food Public, Redefining Food Ways in a Changing World, and Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power. Her most recent research explores food shaming and food policing in communities of color. 
as soon as she started speaking on this panel, like all my neurons went crazy. And I was like, oh my God, I have to interview her. I have to have her on my podcast. So I want to get into that now. Hey there. Hey, how are you? Good morning or good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm great. I'm wonderful. Good, good. How, How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very happy to have you here today. I have a million and one questions. I'm happy that you invited me. Thank you. I appreciate it. So I reached out because we were on that amazing panel at the University of Maryland, um, my alma mater, and you were talking about black women in food, black women and weight as an accompanying issue are really hot topics. As you well know, statistically, black women are more likely to be overweight or obese in comparison to non-Hispanic white women, and mm-hmm. I think Hispanic women as well. And I just wanted to deconstruct what that's about what our relationship is with food. Because I think in some ways it's probably unhealthy. Well, I guess my first question for you is, how would you describe Black women's relationship with food? Black women's relationships with food are varied. I think that the dominant narrative that we get is the one that you just explained. Black women are unhealthy. We don't eat well. But the reality is we have and we we do and we have always eaten all over the map. There are some of us who do engage in a diet that one might say is particularly unhealthy, right? Mostly fried foods, maybe gravies and things of this nature, and don't exercise, okay, because that's another part of it. Then you have people who are continual and perpetual dieters. You also have those who ascribe to veganism, pescatarianism, vegetarianism, all of that. I think the important part of this conversation is to recognize that what we hear and see in popular culture does not necessarily mean that it's true. Why do you think that the dominant narrative of Black women in food is an unhealthy one, because as you point out, it's it's varied, but there is a stereotype that's very negative about our relationship with food. Okay, so l- let's start with a quick history, African-American food history 101, if you will. When African peoples came to this continent via the African continent, who was cooking and preparing the foods that had to be eaten? Most often that would have been women. And these women had responsibility for not only ensuring that the human cargo that was brought over was fed, but they also had the heavy responsibility of making sure that the food was well preserved. So these women came with a a particular kind of of knowledge, uh, skill, and know-how. This would have been the 1500s, 1400s in some instances. As you move up through the centuries, though, a narrative begins to take hold By the time we get to the 19th century, when images and and pictures and so forth start to really begin to um, come into full view, the narrative that we get is of the full-figured, bandana-wearing African-American woman who, you know, has a, a lot of extra weight and is corpulent, but also who can cook well and she becomes the mammy image. So that image that we, and that stereotype, if you will, that we have today goes all the way back to the era of enslavement and remembering that slavery was over 300 years. Hmm. 
the other part of this narrative is that these um, larger black women were asexual, right? They were not sexualized beings. There's a lot that goes into unpacking body size and image of, of black women. You talked about women of larger size. I like the way that you phrase that, of being considered asexual. In some ways, we still do that. People sometimes are very shocked when they, they see a woman who has weight on her with a, an attractive fit man. And they think, hmm, her? Why do we think that weight is so unattractive? We are conditioned to believe that the thin, presumably fit because she's thin, mm-hmm fair skin or white body is the ideal. Let's go back again to the African continent. Some people have heard of the Venus Hottentot, right? Sarge Bartman. One of the reasons she was placed on display so long ago is because Europeans had never seen women with these robust um, hips and breasts and buttocks, right? And so she was made to be seen as a freak. We have totally in many cases, accepted that colonized mentality. By assuming that all full-figure Black women simply are lazy or don't want to take care of themselves, et cetera, et cetera, we let off the hook, society and the systemic racism, sexism, um, craziness that most of us deal with on a day-to-day basis. Everyone else is allowed to have that leeway, not Black women. We will immediately blame it on, you have a poor diet. I guess maybe like a month or so ago, Afropunk ran an ad for a clothing company. It was, but a woman who was, you know, be considered obese, I would say. And the comments on the Afropunk page were so mean. Where does that come from? That just like, you get so angry about someone else's food choices or someone else's size. Black bodies are, and ever since we've been in this country, considered disposable. Du Bois wrote this many, many decades ago when he said, what does it feel like to be a problem? And then when you move from there to the gendered element of Black women's bodies, now you've got something else. If our bodies do not conform to a particular norm, Now we're out of control and unruly black bodies. People don't know how to take you. There's a fabulous um, sister who does some outstanding work in yoga. She is a yogi and she can contort her body in some incredible ways. You're talking about the woman who's in the the Kotex ad. Yeah, Jasmine Jasmine Stanley. Yes, 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 yes. Mm -hmm. She's a yoga teacher, body positive advocate. She's a writer. And she will tell you in a minute, she's like, you know, I don't give a shit. People do not know what to do with her. So when she comes on and she's smoking weed and and doing yoga and and in her own Zen space, but but has decided to put um, this image of herself on public and social media, people go berserk in the comments. They're mean they're angry with her for being her. Your body is this, your body is, this woman can move her body in ways that some of us don't can't even fathom or dream about. Some of us are sitting at home on our sofas and in our easy chair with the computer or our phone, haven't moved a, a muscle. 
and she's doing, you know, headstands and downward dog and asan, you know, asnana poses. People go in because they they see her as a disposable, unruly black body. We need you when you look like that to stay in your lane. Anything else, I can't control you. I can't figure out where you belong. And you're doing too much because you're moving about and you being you. And I don't need you to be you because I can't control your body. And mm-hmm. therefore, I can't control your mind. And so I'm losing control watching you be in control of yourself. I follow the plus size movement. I look at women like um, or entertainers like Lizzo, who, you know, is on the cover of Playboy, which I was like, really? Mm -hmm. That's amazing. There's such a celebration, but it's so, I guess, weird to me how it's taken so long for women, for plus size women to sort of be on the margins of acceptance, because I would not say that they've, they've reached full acceptance yet, but, but to just to get a place where to be seen. The reality is anything that does not look or conform to what we are used to seeing on the cover of People magazine and Playboy and all of those other kinds of magazines is a problem. And one of the things I really like about Black Girls Run is that every you see every body, every size, all of that. The beauty standard for Black women, our ideal culturally is different than that of white women, Hispanic women, Asian women. In general, we tend to think a curvier woman is beautiful and has these 36, 24, 36 dimensions. Where does that come from? Popular culture is the absolute insidious way in which all of this kind of information gets sent out to our young women and young men. But then you also have it in our institutions at home. Sometimes you get it in your house of worship. You absolutely get it in school. My daughter and I were just talking about this because when she was in third or fourth grade, um, her gym teacher told her um, that she was obese and that she was going to die an early death. My child was not obese, but she was starting to show breast formation, a little hippie, a little tiny waist. But to have a teacher tell anyone that, but certainly young girls at such an, such an impressionable age, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's like vomit inducing. Even if the child was overweight, like how is that helpful? And, and, and what ends up happening with these conversations, the thing that they don't do to get back to the food is they don't take into consideration people's cultural lives. What do you mean by that when you say cultural lives? I come from a culture where X, Y, and Z is the norm. Or I live in a region of the country where this is the way that we eat. Or I come from this part of the world where fish is is just a staple or meat is a staple or starches are a necessity. But we don't get into that. We simply have normalized a particular way of eating. And we've come up with this arbitrary figure called the body mass index. And we've decided if you don't conform to these numbers, despite the fact that you might be from a culture that is heavier hipped or thinner hipped or or thinner busted or what have you, if you don't conform to these numbers, okay, now you're deviant. Right now on social media, there is a clip from a pastor. I'm not sure what church mm-hmm. it is, or if he's a legitimate pastor even. But he seems to be leading some sort of women's ministry, and he he's telling the women why they're single. And he asks for anyone can come up, and he'll tell them what's wrong with them. He'll look at them, and he'll tell tell them why they're single. So this mm-hmm. woman volunteers and comes to the front of the church. Have you seen this clip? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so for the people listening, so the woman comes to the front, he takes one look over her and he was like, you're too fat, you need to lose weight. And mm-hmm. then he starts talking about like her bra size and where she needs That's to go right. buy bras. And I'm like, sir, you don't wear a bra. How do you know all this about bras? It's, it's terrible to do that to a woman on social media, to her face, behind her back, the whole nine yards, but especially in church, because now you're tying in your spirituality and your faith with like being demeaned and degraded. Yeah, I saw that clip. Regardless of the context, anytime you're talking about a woman's body in public and you're doing it in a way that is not affirming, I don't care what she looks like or any person. It could be a man, woman, boy or girl. Um woman, man, girl, or boy, whichever way you want to put it, um, the words that were said to her were demeaning and they were, they were mean-spirited. And whether that was the intent, that was how it landed on a lot of people's ears um, who were not that woman. I can only imagine how, how she, she may have felt and received that. Some people move about this world doing harm every day and it bothers them not. I, I don't know where people get off with that type of, of, of um, quote unquote, air quote, helpful. Uh, I'm just trying to be helpful. No, no, you're not. You're being mean. <laughs> being mean. Um, and let's just call it what it is. As one who is a PK, I grew up in the church. Um And so I'm often blown away by the ways in which we talk about women's bodies in church, what's below their clothing, what's above their clothing. I'm just like, why are we having this conversation in this setting? If you're going to have this kind of conversation, maybe it's better to have the church mothers have that conversation with women. Boundary crossing is, I guess, is a part of this, which goes again back to the food, because everyone feels like they're an expert and can tell you how to live your best life. I think the other thing that bothered me about that clip was the default assumption, and we mentioned this before, is that no one will be attracted to a woman if she's plus-sized. Yeah. Like, it was just like, oh, if you want to meet a man, like, you've got to lose weight. And it's just like, wait, what? Well, that's the narrative, right? That your beauty, both outer and inner, is dependent upon someone else. It's dependent upon someone else's acceptance of you. It's dependent upon someone else's affirmation of you. We see this a lot. We saw it a couple of years ago when the weather woman had on the very wonderfully form-fitting dress and someone wrote in and said, you're disgusting because, you know, you're too fat. I would never wear that dress. You're talking about Demetria Oblior? Yeah, 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 exactly. And people came out in mass in defense of her because, I mean, she's a beautiful woman. The fact that we feel like we have the audacity to tell other people about their lives and we do it with impunity, like, yeah, well, this is what I can do without any sort of medical degree, without any benefit of knowing this person's life, without any research. We just feel like we can say, yeah, I don't like the way you look. So I'm going I'm to tell you that. Can we talk uh, just a little bit about the way that men's perception or our idea of men's perception plays into body image and weight and also our relationship with food? A lot of this conversation is centered about plus size women who want to lose weight to be a certain shape, an ideal shape or be thin. But there's also like a big group of women who are actively trying to gain weight because the, mm-hmm. the beauty ideal for black women is that you're thick, really big ass, really big boobs with a really tiny waist. But for the thin girls, they're, they're going on a different regimen trying to meet that ideal. We have our 
idea of what um, beauty is often from from music. And that's not new. That has been going on since music has been around, right? My jelly roll narratives and songs that that speak to what a sexy woman looks like was like you said, big ass, big tits, big, short, small waist. It takes a lot of work to get like that, first of all. When you've had children after a certain age and you're working full time and you've got some other things going on, that may not be equally as attainable unless your body is trained. A lot of women are walking around who will never have that body size and are crazy because they won't. If you do everything in moderation, eat a well-balanced diet, you know, walk, run, jog, walk, treadmill, whatever works for you, get your yearly exams, then you, you live the best way you can in this world that is so mean, so cruel, so full of isms. You have to determine for yourself what is going to be your best life. And you almost have to deter- make that determination and walk straight ahead and not look to the left or the right. Because if you look to the left or the right, you're going to be crazy by what society tells us. Well, if you look this way, then men will like you like that. But then on the other hand, the woman who's on my 600-pound life, she has a man. So always. Every single one of them. Every single one of them, right? And I'm always looking like, wow, good for her. Those are not the day-to-day images that we see, that my love of you has might initially be about attraction, but ultimately, if I'm in love with you because of what you look like, our relationship is going to be problematic. My message to women, to men, is always, you got to live your best life for you. What works best for you? I have one more question for you. A popular one that I think I can relate to. Oprah, when she was doing her talk show, would talk Mm -hmm. very often about her relationship with food. She was an emotional eater. She liked the starches, Mm -hmm. the potatoes, the fries. And I think a lot of women, we use food as an emotional balm. For people who deal with it, how do we address it, fix it, find a new healthier balm, I guess? Most of us um, have comfort foods, whether it's a food that reminds us of home or reminds us of family. For some people, it's mashed potatoes for other people, it could be rice, popcorn, pizza, whatever. We all have our comfort food. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. There are foods that when you eat them, they satiate you, not just appetite-wise and physically, but they satiate you emotionally. It's not a problem until you look up and you've eaten for a whole pizza or two or three. And now you're moving into perhaps a space where you might need some other kinds of emotional work. One of the reasons that Oprah was able to connect with people, like you said, is because we've all been there. Many of us are still there. Oprah has not made, has not had any qualms about her relationships with food. And I think that that's a good thing. But Oprah, if you listen, she also has told you some other things. She has gone through in her life some traumas. Sometimes when we're we're having conversations with people, we only want to pull out what we want to pull out. Oprah has done some real work around that trauma. She's For a while, she was connected to Ayanla. Ayanla was perhaps helping her fix her life. She was also connected to Maya Angelou. She's surrounded by lots of Gail and others who help to reinforce the positivity that she wants and needs in her life. While you're looking to food to provide that comfort, 
Where else do you provide it? Maybe it's in going for a walk. Maybe it's in sitting behind a computer playing spades all day. Maybe it's in watching Netflix and binging. I don't know. But I think what we have to do is find our peace. And I would encourage people to find our peace in multiple places and to try and find your peace in places that are going to actually provide peace and not lead you to another space of unhealthiness, not trade one unhealthy place for another. My parting words for for your audience and and for myself is, is find your healthy and find your happiness. What brings you joy? When Black women start tapping into our joy, which may or may not be defined by anyone else, oh my God, we are powerful. Find your joy and then you'll find your health and then you find your happiness. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. It's good to meet you and good to talk with you. All right. Have an awesome day. Wasn't she awesome? I love just talking to people and getting informed. I have so many questions about the world. I've always been like that three-year-old stage of why, 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 why? I am my best self when I am seeking knowledge. Also, that little tidbit about joy. There's two women in LA. They've probably got not even 10 years on me. One of them is writing the screenplay for Don't Waste Your Pretty. She's super awesome. But she's sort of like my guiding light. And she says the very same thing to me about joy. Like whenever I talk about something, she was like, but does it spark joy? That's her bottom line for everything. Initially, I was like, anybody got no time to be worried about no goddamn joy? Sometimes things just have to be done. And she was like, actually, they don't. And she was like, your life could be so much more productive if you focused on not just doing things, but finding joy. I met her last November. I was like, this lady's crazy. She on that L.A. shit. She's probably on some CBD like everyone else. But then I took it to heart. I practiced the joy thing. The joy thing comes along with the patience thing because joy just doesn't come overnight. Sometimes you have to wait for joy. You have to wait to feel that spark. I waited for that spark. That's how I ended up with an apartment that faces the mountains and I watched the sunrise. It's pink every morning. And then I put on my mask and go back to bed because it's too bright in my apartment. I love that lady. I co-sign that whole joy movement. It sounds like real like, oh, you, you burn incense and you smoke weed. But it's actually you can apply it to your life in very small ways. Look for the joy. I promise you it's there. It will make a difference in your life if you actively try to seek it. It worked for me. I'm telling you. Give it a try. So that's it. That's it for this week. It was supposed to be it for the podcast. I told you all I was going to do this thing for 90 days. Technically, we're at our 90th day. I'm not abandoning you. Don't worry. I will be back next week on Thursday. So I'm going to continue the podcast for at least another 30 days because I feel like I owe you that through the ups and downs and the rockiness and the inconsistencies. And I very much appreciate you for sticking with me as I decide to reinvent and rebuild my life. Another 30 days. We'll make a determination at the end of that. Is that fair? I hope so. So as always, thank you for tuning in. If you need some shenanigans in the middle of the week, you can always follow me on my social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Demetria L. Lucas. And I think that's everything. 
If you like what you heard, send me a little message. I always like to know what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what your feedback is. And we'll talk again next week, Thursday. I'm back on schedule. Thank you for your patience. Okay. Okay.